Welcome everybody to my podcast, Big Little Small Talk. I'm Megan O'Hara-Sullivan and I love to talk, but I also love to listen. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome listeners, you're on Big Little Small Talk and you're with me, Megan O'Hara-Sullivan. Today I have another person with an order of Australia metal, an AM, and his name is Lance C. Smith. He's an 80-year-old gentleman that I met at an interesting night, one night at the Down Steam. Welcome, Lance, to my segment, Big Little Small Talk. Thank you, Megan. I'm going to start off, Lance, by asking you the question, what is the brighter side of a death threat? Okay, the brighter side of a death threat is actually the title of my autobiography. That was the first book I ever wrote. Um, and it was basically brought on by the... I worked for 20 years with the oncology kids at Sydney Children's Hospital. Um, and we used to bring um, one 10-day trip per year up north to Queensland just before these group of kids, so very seriously ill, and uh, just before they had a bone marrow transplant. And so the idea was that Dr. Stevens at the time wanted to find out what it did to them both physically and mentally prior to their operations, which was basically what he called the last chance dance. And we would come up and we would do some amazing things for 10 days. But the brighter side of the death threat were these kids um, facing an awful, very short time on earth and their attitude to life and their strength and their coping mechanisms. Oh, dear, it was amazing. So it was always the brighter side of a death threat. Those kids had a sense of humour second to none. Well, that wasn't what I thought you were going to say. I thought it must have been a crime (laughs) novel or something like that. So, Lance, you are... Well, let me get straight first off. Are you a Lance or a Lance? I'm a Lance. You're a Lance. Yes. You're a good Aussie Lance. Unless Uh, I'm a Kiwi, then I'm a Lance. Or a South Australian, I think. Well, let's, let's go back, 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 right to the very beginning, because I do want to talk about the Bear Cottage, which you've just mentioned there, but I want to talk about how you ended up in the Whit Sundays as a dive instructor um, and a entrepreneur, was it? You'd, and, and this was after you'd entertainer. been in... Entertainer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After I, you'd been I, in Europe. Uh, yes, yes. I, I'd uh, left the London Fire Brigade. I came home... Um, I joined the New South Wales Fire Brigade at King's Cross and then after a few years I decided I wanted to do more about my diving and I took on the job of diving instructor on Daydream Island. Um, And I was there until Cyclone Ada in January 1970 the cyclone came through and closed down um, South Mole, Hayman and uh, Daydream for quite some time. Um, I had a few good years up there and that's where I met my bride but uh, when you're on Daydream in those days you didn't just do the job you were sent there for, you were in the entertaining business, you were the street sweeper, you were the pool cleaner, you were everything. It was great, it was a great year, $43 a week. Oh, paid in cash, no doubt. Yes. So, Lance, just take me back before that. Where had you grown up? Where had you spent your early years? Okay, I was born in Sydney. Um, my father was an architect with the government, so we lived in Broken Hill, Coffs Harbour, Cootamundra, Bathurst. Um, we kind of were all over the place, and I ended up back in Sydney uh, in uh, when I was about 14, and I left Australia when I was 16 and went over to Europe. And you said you mentioned that you'd you'd been in the London Fire Brigade. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So what what we're talking sort of mid sixties? Uh, no, late fifty nine. Uh, fifty nine was when I left Australia, and I joined the Fire Brigade in sixty one, um, in England, uh, in London, and I came home in sixty four, and I spent three years then at Kings Cross Fire Station. I transferred out to New South Wales, and then I went up to uh, Daydream. So tell me about going to London in late 50s, early 60s, was it exciting? What did you do? Like, were you an Aussie fish out of water or were there a lot of Aussies over there sort of doing that big trek? There weren't a lot, not as many as there are today. Today's just, it's passage, everybody goes on it. Um, Let's just say that when I I went over on a ship called the Castel Felice, um, one of the Sitmar lines back in those days, and when I got there, uh, everybody on board seemed to be heading for a place called Earl's Court and I was there for about 48 hours and it was 
full of Australians and Kiwis and Yarpies, uh, South Africans, and uh, that's not what I went for. So I left very quickly and uh, I just started to explore and I loved it. I had the time of my life. Mind you, I think back now, at the time I was 16 and I knew everything. Um, I guess I didn't. Don't prove that. You were a 16 year old boy, you went on the boat, how long did that take? Uh, seven weeks to get to England. Seven weeks, yeah. wow. And were people sort of worried about you as a 16 year old being on your own? Were you on your own? I was on my own. Um, so yes, uh, yes, uh, particularly mum. Um, they were, I couldn't see why. Um, you're bulletproof when you're 16. So I didn't see any problem. Did you have money saved up and, and where did you sleep? Where Good did right. you stay? I worked very, very hard um, to, to get to, uh, I did about eight jobs all through school and saved and uh, my parents wouldn't let me go until I had 500 quid plus the trip home saved up. So it took me a long while to do that for about three years, I think from when I was about 13 to when I was 16. And what was driving the sort of desire to get there? Can you remember, like, had you seen something in a newspaper or...? or... Very clear. I had an absolute mongrel of a father and I just wanted to get away. Right. End yeah. of story. Yeah. And it was, it was sad, but that was the driver and, uh, and it turned out it worked. And why, why go to London? Like, why not go around Australia? You just thought that that was the furthest uh, you could get? No, that was the easy choice. They spoke the language that I spoke. I was going to be able to survive no matter what. Um, I was a pretty good worker and I was pretty keen to try, um, especially through Europe. I mean, I did all sorts of things. I washed dishes. I did everything that you could imagine. I worked as a nurse's aide in Holland and, and I can remember this lady very impressed that the nurse's aide spent spoke English and she didn't try me on Dutch. <laughs> Lance, I just find it fascinating that you would, like literally that very first day you got off the ship, where did you sleep? Uh, Earl's Court, um, in uh, just in uh, what they call a backpackers today, just for a couple of days and then I went out to a, um, a little place called Tooting Beck uh, for a little while and then I went to Europe and then I came back and I lived in Notting Hill when I was in the fire brigade I lived in Notting Hill um, which in those days was not the fashionable suburb that it is today and as a matter of fact there was a guy Sir Oswald Mosley how they get these titles I have no idea he and his black shirts um, used to come out to where we were and preach anything anti-black um, it was really, and then he would take his black shirts and go to Bethnal Green or St John's Wood and preach anti-Semitism over there. Um, I don't know, I mean I do believe in free speech but this sort of stuff is just, it's like the far right stuff today, it's rubbish. And uh, uh, it was just interesting, it was a very, very interesting time. I loved it, I loved travelling, I loved discovering um, and everything worked out. It had its challenges, yeah, but it was good. And were you ever, as a young boy um, in danger or um, ripped off or anything like that? Yes, um, not in so much danger. I, we got into a few things in the fire brigade which were um, pretty ordinary. Uh, but no, I didn't have any major danger outside of things like work. Um, but um, yes, when you are travelling you get fleeced. or You've just got to be so careful. Um, we all had bum bags of some description that were never sort of off our bodies and uh, um, but even then people work out ways of pinching stuff off you and uh, it was it was part of the course but you but we didn't have much so you'd, you'd found a group of people by this stage had you I, or you just hooked up with no I just hooked up that. with people as I went and it wasn't until I got to into the fire brigade that I started to form any mates uh, mateships and there and funnily enough that was um, cocky 60 years ago um, and I'm still close to a lot of them today mm. yeah. such a formative time in your life I would love to see some photos of you were you really um, into the music scene or anything and the fashion One of the things and the... that, not fashion, certainly not, and I never, still not. Um, but in music, I've always loved music. Um, I've always been involved in, I've got more involved as life gone on. But um, I, um, I 
was amazed traveling through Europe, everywhere you went were jukeboxes, and they were all the American stuff. It was all of the rock and roll stuff. It was the Elvis Presley, it was the crooners, and one of them died just last week, I think, Tony Bennett. I mean, way back then. And they were all the way through Europe. And, and funnily enough, they couldn't speak English as they do today, um, but they all knew those songs. And, and it just, it was kind of like a old home week everywhere you went. You'd be in the middle of, I was working in a place called Piraeus in Greece. And the little cafe next door to us, every, all day was Elvis with Wooden Heart and, and you know, all those different songs. And it was kind of like, <laughs> kind of like being at home. Mm. It was good. So you, how, long, how many years did you spend there before you came back to the work away, in the cross? Uh, I was away for five and a half years. Right. It's such an incredible thing to do. You came home, you start, were you living in the cross as well as being in the No, fire? no, we lived in uh, Lakemba at the time. The family had a home in Lakemba. Um, so you'd gone home to your mum and dad? Yes, And yes. how was that relationship then after um, sort of travelling the world for five years? It was, it was I learned how to cope better. Um, uh, it was, and mum was brilliant, but she, sadly she died when she was 49. Um, but uh, it, it was it was okay, I was able to handle it okay. All so right. you was, sort of I was never close. Yeah, you re-established a relationship with your father of sorts. Enough, yeah, enough, enough to, to survive. Yeah, enough. Uh, it had been pretty ordinary prior to me going away, um, but I was a lot different. I was a lot more capable when I got home, um, mm. and even physically, I could stand up to him, which I couldn't before I went. Mm. And then, um, why did you decide to go up north then? And when you say that you're an entertainer at, um, at was it South Mile? Or Daydream. Daydream. Daydream what are we talking entertaining? Right. Yeah. I was really a keen diver. I always have been a keen diver since I was a little brat. Um, and I was in a, a diving club in Sydney and I couldn't get enough of it. And myself and a couple of police mates, when I was in the fire brigade, we used to earn a lot of money um, spearing sharks and selling them to fish shops. Um, down mainly down the south coast near around uh, Wollongong and south of Wollongong um, and I loved it I loved being underwater and then what you do as you get older you want to get rid of the spear guns and the and the uh, shotgun head hand spears and you want to get a camera because your values change and you and everything changes so I wanted to see more of the diving side of it from there and the barrier reef was the draw card so the only way I could do it was get a job as a diving instructor and I was good and uh, on Daydream Island um, or on the islands and Daydream came up and uh, I went there in uh, 1960, early 68. And what about the entertainer part? Well, when you walk on the island, um, yeah, what else can you do? And if you've got two legs and you can hold a tune in any way, shape or form, you're in the luau show on Saturday night, you're in the, um, the what was it, the, the uh, Roaring Twenties night on a Tuesday. So I had all these songs, I'd sing The Only Man on the Island, all these different things. I loved it, it was good. But no, I'd had no formal training as such. Well, that's not quite right. I did win um, the Terry Deer National Amateur Hour uh, as a kid. Uh, with uh, another young bloke called uh, John Griffith. We, we sang under the title of The Colbert Brothers and we won his radio amateur hour. Before, that was before, when I was 15. Um, and uh, so I'd, I'd had a bit of stuff, but I didn't do anything like we did up on Daydream. It was good. And that was the start of something pretty big. And all the... Um the resorts and things, they were already there by then, were they? Yes. Or, yeah. uh, Hamilton wasn't. There was uh -huh. nothing on Hamilton. Um, uh, were, no uh, no resort. Um, but South Mile, Daydream, Hayman were the three big ones at that particular time. Mm. Brampton was there too. Yes, I didn't realise that they were operating as, um, as those resorts yeah, that they early. Yeah. Mm. And was it a bit of a kind of a Wild West frontier? Like, you know, you're... Yeah, it's interesting. I look back on it now. Um, Daydream was the only one then that was like the set of South Pacific. It was like going on to Harry Belafonte's island somewhere and singing all the islands in the sun and all that sort of stuff. 
The others were more upmarket. The Heyman certainly was owned by Ansett at the time. It was more upmarket and it was kind of like a five-star resort is today. Uh, they didn't really look or feel like an island, but it was good. It was good. And South Mole, uh, owned by the Bauer family in those days, was a pretty rugged place. But um, they, had a, they had a golf course, which was more than we had. Um, and uh, yeah, it was good fun. It was good, but yeah. primitive. Yeah, and how long did you spend up there? Well, us, we stayed. The Cyclone Ada came through in uh, January 1970, and some of our staff were killed, some guests were killed on, on some of the islands. So they, they lost 17 people that night, and, you know, it was 50 years to the day before they actually, at Airlie Beach, we went up a, in um, uh, 2020, um, 50 years to the day before they finally put up a plaque to the 17 people that lost their lives. But I only stayed up long enough to dive to salvage a whole lot of the ships that had been sunk. Um, what ships had been sunk? Uh, in what circumstances? Uh, a lot of pleasure craft. Um, a lot of people who were sailing through the Whitsundays at the time, plus our own boats. Our boat, the main boat on Daydream, uh, the Daydream 2, um, was a fair mile that was a 250 passenger boat. It was quite a big one, and uh, our decky got killed, um, Uncle Bill got killed on that. Um, they're a mixture. The, uh, from those bigger boats, South Mole lost boats, uh, Hayman lost boats, um, one, one boat they've never found with seven people on board. Uh, it was pretty wild. So tell me about that. I, I, I honestly have never sort of heard about this. So did you not know the cyclone was coming okay. through? And, and how were the people killed apart from drowned on Good boats? point. Okay. The story was with me. Our big boss was Joy Collins on the island and she had come to me about a month before to say that a little island just south of Daydream, Long Island, there was a, there was a place there called Palm Bay and it was going into liquidation and they asked her to form a management team. So I was picked to be the manager and I went down there with a few of the Daydream staff and we took it over and we were running that. We got a um, telex. You're too young to know what a telex was. Is uh, it even pre-fax, I'm guessing? Is that, is that right, Matt? <laughs> yes, yes. We got a telex telling us that there was a cyclone coming. It was very inaccurate. For, for argument's sake, it said that the, um, the cyclone gusting up to 80 knots, well, uh, the anometer on the island blew out at just over 200 knots. It was massive, absolutely massive. We, none of us knew anything about it. I didn't know there was an eye in a cyclone. So we were so happy when everybody got through unscathed and the cyclone stopped and it went dead still. And for an hour we celebrated, we thought it was good. The hotel had gone, everything above ground basically had gone except for a few smash buildings up at the top. And um, we were pretty excited. The fact that what we didn't know was of course it was coming back the other way. So all. All, uh, I, I've often said to people that in the hours leading up to it, I sent half the team to bed early to do a two o'clock shift and myself and a couple of others said we would do until two. I think we got them out of bed around about midnight because it, the roofs were starting to go and places, things were starting to happen. Um, and uh, it was, we learned a lot. Mm. It was very character building. Mm. Oh, Lance, I've got chills. I just can't imagine how terrifying. Did you did you think you were going to die? It must be Myself so noisy. and a fellow named violent. Gary Flanagan were trying to get to a hut where we knew there were two girls. And we got hit by a tree and mm. taken out mm. to sea. I probably, oh, I don't know, I think back now, probably in no more than about 200 metres, but we were just literally picked up in not badly hurt, or cut, but not badly hurt. And we got out of the tree, the pair of us, Higdiari was also a diver, um, and funnily enough, there were no waves at that stage. They were all on the other side of the island. The wind was coming across the island. Where we were trying to get back was against the wind, but there was it was as flat as a, flat as a pancake. When that's happening, you just go into survival mode. You don't think. And then when we got back on shore we tried to get up to where we knew those two girls were and by this time their place had gone they were still there actually in a bathroom under a uh, big mattress um, and it was uh, it's it's kind of like a lot of other things in life later on when you're thinking about it like we had plenty of time because nobody could come and get us we had a chef named Manfred 
and we had no food. Um, and he, we cut just a, um, some wood and some vines and some. Um, we made some arrows, and he speared a wild goat. <laughs> And we, we ate wild goats. <laughs> oh my God, it's like being on right. Gilligan's Island. Well, it kind of was. It kind of was. And then the Navy came and got us. That was very, very, uh, very good when we heard the Navy, the destroyer. Um, the Navy came and got us about four days later. Uh, do you feel now when you um, are in a storm, do you feel sort of traumatised by it? I don't like wind. I am. Don't know, uh, it, uh, I'm terrified of driving in lightning. I don't know, and I don't know if it was associated with that or not. I, I don't ever remember being worried about lightning or wind, but wind does worry me even today because we went through a fair bit, and uh, um, I do my level best to stay away from uh, anything that's got sort of major wind gusts. Whoa, and here I was thinking that going to London was going to be um, traumatic. When I met you, we were at an event at Downsteam, and there was someone else who was there. Um, who everyone would know, Normie Rowe. What's yep. your association with Normie Rowe? Is it being a fellow recipient of an award or is there some other way that you know him? Uh, that's interesting. That's when we sort of formed, uh, but probably went closer. Normie and I go back to when I joined a company called Lendlease and shifted up to the coast in 1980. I think it was, 1985, um, what I mean a bit earlier than that, we went to a place called King's Row on the Gold Coast and Normie was, happens to be living there and we got to know him and I didn't work, uh, we knew him reasonably well but not that well and then back, in, uh, well let's sing, he was the star of my 60th birthday so that was, no 50th so it was 30 years ago, um, but we sort of grew close after that and then, then I got into theatre and I was producing quite a few big shows um, and I did have Normie in a number of those shows. Um, Tell me about some of those shows. Um, Alright, we just did the ones that people loved. We did The Fiddlers on the Roof, The Oklahomas, The Sound of Music, so Anything Goes, those sort of uh, shows that went through and then I tried to pick like in the case of Oklahoma, there's a part called Judd Fry. He, he's a pretty mean and nasty man sitting in there. And so I said to Normie, do you want to drive it? Because Normie's not all that good with lines, but he's good at lots of things. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll give it a crack. And he was great. He was really, really good. Um, so I would get the Normie Rose and JP Wise and a whole lot of those guys at different people that were wanting to do something different because they'd been on stage all their lives and they were used to that thing but they weren't used to doing the um, the stage stuff so we did what is now known as pro-am theatre we would get half a dozen pros and then a whole lot of very gifted amateurs that would love to be pros but didn't have the money to be able to do it because there's no money in theatre and uh, or very very little money in theatre um, and we started doing that at a place called the Hill Centre in Sydney in, in uh, Castle Hill it was a 1,600-seat theatre, five levels. Um, it was beautiful. It was really good. And we were there for nearly 10 years doing those. Was this a full-time job for you? Or it were was. you yeah, earning it was, money it, doing it? It, it became full-time. I, I left Lendlease to take it on full-time, but we were running special events and we were, we were involved in things like the Tamworth Country Music Festival. Uh, we were staging... Carols at Janolan Caves every year. We did that for 15 years. Um, so we were in sort of events, uh, musical type events, as well as the theatre. Mm. It was good. I'll just remind the listeners that they're on 40DB and they're with me, Megan O'Hara Sullivan, and we're in big little small talk and we're talking to Lance Smith, who is an entertainer, an entrepreneur. But what I do want to go on to is your career in local government. So tell me about that. How did that come about? Helen and I bought a little tiny motel in Batemans Bay in 1970, at the end of 1970. We had the three kids there. Um, and then as you, when you're in business, you get a bit frustrated with the Chamber of Commerce. So I joined that and I ended up becoming president. And then I sort of got a bit in, came to locks with council a few times. And so I stood for council and I got on and then I became deputy shire president. And eventually I became shire president of Eurobadala. And I loved it. I I wish, uh, it's the old story, I wish I knew then what I know now, I could have done so much a better job. I thought at the time I did a terrific job, but 
in hindsight, I wished I'd, there's a few things I've learned in the years since that was many years ago. Um, but yes, I got involved and uh, then I was shy president for a few years and, and I left uh, because I was leaving Bateman's Bay then to join Lendlease. Um, and that was a great move. I never thought I'd leave Bateman's Bay. It's a great spot, beautiful. But I needed to spread my wings um, and I did and it was a, it was a good move. Was the career in local government, was that a full-time career or were you, it you still had then. the motel then? Yeah, yeah. Well, I still had the motel, plus I um, built a, a wildlife park. Um, a wildlife there. park? Yeah, a wildlife okay, park. Okay, let's hear so. about the wildlife park, lads. Well, it's still there, it's going well um, now. Um, pioneers don't make money, that was another discovery I made as I went through life. Um, it's called uh, Birdland down at Batemans Bay um, and it's a wildlife sanctuary and it was good. Uh, I... Again, it's one of those things, I lost a heap of money, but I would do it all over again. It was worth every bit of it, and the people that are there now, 50 years later, they're doing really well. Um, so we built that. So I had the wildlife park, and uh, I had the motel, um, and yeah, I was shy president. And in those days, we weren't um, rewarded as so many of you people are today. You can almost, um, I think most people today, make it a full because it's worth it now but it's a they I won't say it's a big wage it's not a big wage but at least you don't not out of pocket as we used to be back then well I was at something the other day and there was a quote um, and it said something like your success as a leader isn't what what you do but the but what you put in motion so maybe you know putting them the but wildlife why why did you start a bird wildlife park and was it just birds okay that was going to be my my initial thing was just along the road from us on the waterfront every time i drove past this little headland i thought it was corumban bird sanctuary because it was exactly it was set on the water it looked the same it felt the same and i just casually said to the bloke from the department of lands one day if we ever put in an application to develop that into a a corumban style of thing would you look at it and they said yes so that led to a 40-year lease and and that led to that going on but and i want to pick up on what you just said because um, we started a thing in 1975 called the george bass surf boat marathon and it was a rowing race down the george bass strip for over seven days and we had teams from england from holland from new zealand everything and boy, uh, all these years later has that become something. And so yes, we started it and it was tiny and it was only 17 teams the first year we did it. And th th and I, I'm really wrapped that a lot of those things we did back then, Birdland, the, the George Bass and those sorts of things are alive and well mm. today. Would that be why you were inducted into the Surf Life Saving Marathon Surf Boat Rowers Hall of Fame? Correct. Is that the same a thing? A lot of people say, gee, you were a surf boat rower. No, I wasn't a surf boat rower. Um, I, I ran that event, uh, or I helped with the running of that event for 40-something years. And yes, I got inducted into the Surf Life Saving Rowers Hall of Fame. Incredible, amongst other things. What about the TOO Society? What's that? That was something funny. Way back in our Batemans Bay days, oh, I suppose it was mid-70s, a fellow named Doug Brennan and I, well, things were tough and uh, we were talking about an idea that we just sort of floated about at the end of the day, instead of just knocking off, why didn't you finish the job you're on, providing that the boss passed that saving on to whoever was going to be. That was how it started. Um, we then took a full page ad in the Daily Telegraph in Sydney and challenged everybody to do what they were doing in Batemans Bay. We'd been doing it for about a month and a lot of people came up with some pretty good ideas, just different things and passing them on. And it, when I think about it now, um, and we changed currency in 66 and this was about nearly 10 years later. Um, and so the local news agent, his staff were doing different things so they sold the papers at a cent less. It didn't, it didn't, it wasn't much but it was something being passed on all the time. It was just that way of showing how it was passed on. And it just took on. We ended up doing lots of radio interviews overseas. They flew me to New Zealand. We went over to Perth. We did all sorts of things. And, and it was good for Batemans, but it didn't do us any harm. <laughs> so TOO stands for Think of Others. Think of Others. So it wasn't just staying at work. It was sort of like a pay it forward type of thing. Yes. So when Oprah, you know, or whoever it was, started yeah. that pay it forward, you'd been doing it in Batemans Bay forever. We did. We, we <laughs> kind of started that thing. And it, it was 
some people came up with some really good ideas and passed it on and it was very evident that it was being passed on to people who didn't expect it. And now, yes, you're right. I, I hear about these things today where people, you know, going to get a coffee and the bloke says, no, it's already been paid for. They, I mean, that gives that mm. gives people a lift. So that's what this Think of Others scheme was. Yeah. It was um, an act of kindness yes, for was. someone else. Yeah, really? that had to be passed on. Yeah. So, Lance... Um, you sound like you're a real a goer, a real entrepreneur, right? So I would imagine you'd have the ups, the really, really high highs, but I can imagine that you might have the low lows that come Absolutely. with that. Is that right? Absolutely. Financially and mentally? and Yeah, in every other way. And I quite often think back, I've had 80 years to plan this, um, I quite often think back as to what I would change. And you know what? When you get to a destination, you really don't want to change anything because you might not get to that destination if you didn't go through all those things. Um, and I would love to say that I learnt as I went along in all of these different things. Um, my coping mechanism is really good. Um, and, um, and I did learn. And, and, and now I try as I can, as best I can, to pass that on. Mm. Mentoring young people, do you mean? Or yes, uh, I was in. Uh, I've been involved in mentoring young people for a, certainly while I was at Lendley, so they did, they let me do that quite a lot. Um, but no, just since then, I've been running events and involved in. Uh, we were involved in Bear Cottage for years in Sydney, and we established that that was Australia's first children's hospice. And so then when they said they were going to have one in Brisbane, Hummingbird House, we, we said, right, we'll put our hand up, and we did that one as well. Um, and just different things that I've been involved in that I learnt a lot about, um, that were a lot of them were trailblazing stuff, um, and so we got behind it, and, and, and I, I've had a lot of fun with that. Angel Flight was another one when it started in 2003. A, a Brisbane fellow, Bill Bristow, um, started this Angel Flight where... They would fly out to the bush. It was non-emergency stuff, and they would get people who couldn't afford it, basically, to treatment at Toowoomba, um, where I was in Longreach. Uh, Toowoomba was basically our closest big hospital. Um, so it would be Rockhampton or Toowoomba, and they'd come and pick them up and bring them down, or they'd fly bodies home. They did all sorts of wonderful things. No government funding. So we got, we got behind a few things like that, and we had a lot of fun. What were you doing in Longreach, pray tell? Uh, well, it started off, we leased the two big hotels out, uh, motels out there, the Albert Park Motor Inn and the Longreach Motor Inn uh, in uh, 1999. Um, and uh, Helen and I shifted out there. We ended up buying the taxis. We ended up putting a boat on the Thompson River, which doing dinner cruises, sunset cruises, which is still probably one of the better businesses in Longreach today. It's a good one. Uh, it was wonderful, uh, lovely. Um, and we just got involved in a whole lot of things out there. We sold out in uh, 2008, and then I stayed involved up there for another nine years working for Barcaldon Council and Longreach Council staging events for Angel Flight, which was good. Was it from that time there um, where you got the um, Vince Evert Award for the most outstanding contribution by an individual to tourism in Queensland? Correct. That's correct. So tell me about that. Um, well, uh, I was really lucky there. Uh, it was I was the I was made the first ever life member of the Outback Queensland Tourism Association, and the about two years later they asked me to go to the annual conference uh, which was up in Winton and uh, I did get the Vince Evert. Now Vince Evert was a, a, a real stalwart of tourism out in outback Queensland. He's, he's long gone now. Great guy. And uh, so they put out an award in his honour and uh, I got that which mm. was it was mm. really good. Mm. It was really good. Tell me about um, I read that you're an aged event organiser. Now I don't know whether it's <laughs> events for aged people or you um, you're an events of of old aged events. Uh, sadly, they would be referring to my years on earth. And uh, yes, I, I do. I still, I'm involved. We're staging a very big event in March next year out there, which I'm really looking forward to. So I love the Outback. I love Queensland's Outback. It's just fantastic. So it's an aged event or it's an event no. for aged people? No, it's run by an aged fella. Oh, <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> You've got a couple of tattoos on your, um, on your forearms. Tell me about getting the tattoos. You know, 16, I was in England. Um, I went out with a crowd of Australian sailors. I just remember waking up next morning. I had no idea 
um, I had a newspaper wrapped around both arms and it took about three weeks for all the blood to the everything to go before I finally worked out what I've had tattooed on my arms. Um, what well, have you got tattooed on your arms Well, it, it's totally indistinguishable <laughs> now, um, but it's uh, Jeff, Pat and Lance. We were Jeff and I were both in love with the same girl, her name was Pat, um, and I put homeward bound and a snake and a... Well, a dagger. Uh, and a dagger. Yeah. And then just a map of Australia. Um, it... Um, yeah, it's, again, it's one of the things that, um, given time over, I certainly wouldn't do it again. But well, they're all the fashion now, like you're, you're ahead of your time, Lance. Yeah, ahead of the time. They're not out of place, put it that way. Well, maybe not, maybe not. I, I'm, not I'm too old-fashioned. I just look around, particularly with girls today, and I just see some of the damage that they've done. And I could just imagine what it's going to look like when they're 80. Um, they're not going to be pretty. Because mm. <laughs> you are 80, did you have a big... Big celebration? Did, yeah, we had a great time. We had a great time. Um, and uh, Normie sang at that, Tanya Kernigan sang at that. Um, it was just a whole lot of people sang and did things, and it was good fun. It was really good. Yeah. yeah. There was about 100 and something turned up, and we had a really good... But, of course, at 80, you have it in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, what about your children, Lance? Are they entrepreneurial as well? Oh, that's a good one. Um, not uh, Yes and no. Uh, they're, they're certainly not back. Well, I've got a, a son who's about to retire from the Air Force. He's been in the Air Force for 35 years and, and he actually finishes up next week. Um, then I've got a daughter who lives in the north of England in a 430-year-old heritage home. And one of the things I want to do before I fall off the perch is to go and see. They were on a 10-year restoration there in seven years into the 10 years. It's a beautiful old place. Um, and uh, I want to go and see that. And, and then their other son's been with Qantas for about 25 years in the cabins. And he's done, they've all done, they've all got kids. They've all, we're very, very lucky at the Touchwood. Uh, we've got seven really healthy grandkids. We've got uh, great relationships. They're all... Um so you obviously didn't repeat the sins of the father with, of your own... You know, own what I think I learnt from him, um, when my father died, there were four people at his funeral and two were paid to be there. Um, I was in Sydney on the day, I didn't go. Um, and I think that's so sad, what, what I've missed out on, uh, let alone what he missed out on. And yes, I think that's probably what has kept me... I do not damage relationships that's a thing that just I hold sacrosanct it's a it's a very important thing to, to me mm. and it, I mean it, it takes a big effort because sometimes people don't want to be their father but somehow or other despite that or their mother and they yes. um, they become that anyway don't they, they do. tell me about your books you this is your the um, Okay. <laughs> the brighter side of a death threat. The brighter the side of the death threat was my first book, book. Oh, Facebook, yes. and that that was the autobiography side of thing. And I only did that for family. I wanted my grandkids. I, I realised that when I was a youngster, I didn't. I only had one grandparent, but I didn't give a tuppenny damn about Constance Haldane. Um, and it wasn't until I got old that I started to appreciate heritage and what and what it did. So, when I wrote the book and I had it printed and I wrapped seven of them up with a personal letter to each of my grandkids not to be opened until their 30th birthday. So they've all got them, and none of them are allowed to open it until they turn 30. Um, because I reckon by the time I was 30 and I had mortgages and some life under my belt and various things, I was really interested. And I wanted them to know that Granddad, that Pa was not just an old man on a walking frame, that he had a life and had did some good things. Um, so that's what I wrote it for. Then we had the dreaded... COVID and I'm sitting at Hastings Point twiddling my thumbs and I thought well you know what I really enjoyed doing that I'll have a crack at a trilogy um, of crime so I wrote uh, uh, Deeds of Salvation was the first one the sequel to that is the one you came to the book launch at Downstein um, was um, P.S. Drop Dead and I am now I only have three things left on my bucket list and one of them is to write the third book which I'm uh, not too far from starting and what are the other two? The other two are the ones you've seen. No, um, no, no. What are the other two things on your bucket list? Oh, I want to go and see Mel's oh, house before it's finished. Uh, and I want to run the Trailblazer reunion next year. They're the only three things left. I've been very, very lucky, Megan. I've been able to do a lot of things. 
And I also now only have on my bucket list things that I really, really want to do. There are some things that were on it. I always wanted to go to Serengeti or Kenya or one of those wildlife parks and have a look at one of those, you know, up close and personal. Um, they're not. They're off now because they they can't be done um, physically. I can't do it now. Um, but there's not much. I really haven't missed out on much. So that's all. That's all those three things I want to do. I'm a realist. There's a black, a country music black named um, John uh, John Howie, and he wrote a poem called The Line, and it's a story about we're in that line from the day we're born till the day we come to the other end of it and we don't know where we are in the line. Well, when you get to my age, you know that you're down that end of the line. <laughs> so mm. you, you, it doesn't pay to get too carried away with what you want to do, but those three things, I'd be really happy yeah. if I can finish When are them. we starting the book? Within the next six or eight weeks. I, I'm getting a lot of things off my plate at the moment, um, and when I do that, I've got a particular time in mind that I want to be into it, but I, within the next six or eight weeks, I'll be into it, and I'll enjoy it. Okay, listeners, we can hold you to it, Lance. If we um, if we haven't seen that book come out, have you got a title for the third no. in the trilogy? No. Okay. Well, we'll um, and where can we get a hold of the books? Okay, if you've got uh, if you go on to Lance Colbert Smith, it's only one long word, Lance Colbert Smith, all lowercase dot com. Colbert, C-O-L-B-E-R-T. Yep, mm -hmm. L-A-N-C-E-C-O-L-B-E-R-T-S-M-I-T-H, um, dot com, and uh, that'll take you straight there, and you can have a look at the three books that are there now. You can download parts of them for free. There's all sorts of things. Um, and uh, I'd love it if they would. <laughs> I'd love it. <laughs> oh, Let me tell fair. you, but being a self-publication, um, that's not for the faint-hearted either. You don't get rich. No, no, well that's right, I can imagine. <laughs> One day. One day, we've still got plenty of time, we're still not at the end of that line then. No. So Lance, um, if, you, um, if you look in the mirror, and the last time you looked in the mirror, what were your thoughts, what did you think? Well, I've realised, I suppose, that um, I've saved 10 minutes a day having to have a comb and do my hair. Um, but no, by and large, I see a well-travelled face um, that's had a pretty good run. Yeah, lovely. I, I think maybe um, I was going to ask you if I'm frightened of anything. It is. After hearing that terrifying story of the cyclone, <laughs> is, is, what, what are you frightened of, Lance? You know what, now I can really honestly say the only thing I'm frightened of is not completing the three things I've got on my bucket list. Um, I'm not worried about anything else. Um, I'm certainly not worried about death. By gee, that's one thing that age does for you, it, it's a fact of life. Um, and uh, I'm really lucky. I've outlived so many people and so many things. Um, death does not worry me in the slightest. I'm selfish enough to tell you I don't want it to happen um, for the next 50 years, but I'm doubtful that I'll get to 130. 130, perhaps a bit <laughs> ambitious, but... Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that doesn't frighten me at all. But what does frighten me is not finishing those three. And that shouldn't. Um, but it's just three things that I've got. I'm hell-bent I want to do. Um, and then I can pass off into the sunset very happily. Yeah. Do you have a view on um, what's going to happen to you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, and my, my wishes are very, very simple. Um, I just uh, It's illegal to spread ashes, so I won't tell you where I'm going to spread them, but they're going into two places that are very, very... Um, home to me anyway um, and that's it no plaques I don't want a plaque I don't want anything because I look at around and you talk to people today when did you last go and visit your grandmother's grave I tell you what there's not many of them are going to answer in the affirmative so so I don't want any plaques or anything like that I just want I'm, I'm just one of these people who believes that as long as you're living in someone's heart you you're 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 still around mm. and do you have a view um on what happens to us our soul or our you know any of that after isn't that wonderful uh, it's a great question because my wife has very strong views and she believes in in the hereafter and lots of good things i would love to believe i'm still very i know this much i'm a very spiritual person and i know there are things out there that i just can't explain so i'm therefore open to the fact that something is out there. I just 
can't believe um, a book called a Bible and some of the things that are in there because I, I when I was a young black there was a fellow named Billy Graham used to come out from America. He's an evangelist, wasn't he? An evangelist, yeah. and he was very very good. Um, and he used to gather the flock around him, and I think that there was a JC, and I think he was a Billy Graham of his day, um, that he got the flock around him, as Billy Graham did, um, and there's been lots of fellas try since, some good con men, but there's been some very genuine people have tried since. Mm. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm pretty well open to anything, but I'm sadly not the, not the believer that my bride is. Mm. Well, yes, different people, different um, views, isn't it? What about, um, Lance, could you describe yourself in three words? In three words, I am? A happy chappy. And I, and I, <laughs> and I, really, I really say that because um, I am just so fortunate to have done and experienced life um, that I would have to say that inwardly, and that's really important because the only person you're really accountable for is you, um, uh, and I'm a happy chappy. A happy chappy. That's great. It's um, it's got all the philosophy that you need, but you know, on the surface level, it's it's very good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're self-content. Um, if you were going to leave a part of your body to science, Lance, what would it be? I know what I'd like it to be, my coping mechanism, but I don't know where it is. <laughs> if they can find my coping mechanism, um, up here in your noggin, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, probably. Um, but uh, if I had to find something definite, I think I'd probably like to leave my spine because I've had to use it. I've had to need some strength from time to time, but different challenges that have happened in life. And um, what, What's been the most challenging it. thing for you? Oh dear, they go back probably. Um, Is I it was... when you owed thousands of dollars no. to a venue operator and you had people coming to the show and the, you know? No, I remember once we put on a show at Star City in Sydney and we borrowed three and a half million and we made $48,000. Oh dear, that's not good. That is not good. And even then, we were, I think we we're lucky to make the $48,000. No, that's never ever worried me particularly. Um, I think um, when I was a kid, my mother particularly wanted me to um, become part of the church and I was got at by my Sunday school teacher. Um, and for years and I didn't tell anyone and, and that hurt um, I didn't uh, I it was about probably 30 years and a mate of mine I was in a little town called Cootamundra and um, a mate of mine who'd gone to school with me said to me and we kept up close and he mentioned some day one day about this fellow and I said oh did you know him he said yeah did I ever and he got to him too and we both talked about it and funnily enough I unloaded and I still remember back now to that day, I, I look at stuff today where people are talking about abuse that happened when they were kids, and these people are now as old as me, and it's still badly affecting them. Well, I've got a coping mechanism, and I don't know how I did it, but that one, when I told John all those years later, um, it was I could feel my shoulders lifting because I just... I, you resolve those things against yourself. You think you did something wrong. You, they, they, these people convince you that you've done something wrong, that you made them do what they're doing. Um, that's probably the worst one that I've had to overcome because it was such a long time. Um, then some things happened in the fire brigade, a uh, couple of things with deaths, um, the stuff that we would, particularly with children. And I drove tow trucks for years, which is not for the faint-hearted. Um, and uh, I, I now understand what PTSD is. I see. I didn't know that at the time. And I don't think anyone did really. Um, and I now understand there are things today that trigger things way back in my life that I have no control over. And I think now I look back at some of these people, the men and women that have come back from servicing, and the first responders and people like that. I think what the things that have happened to me and I magnify that you know and and think of what those poor buggers go through um, so I've had a fair bit of that mm. I, I've never been worried about the risks that we took financially I worry more that I don't entertain people or keep people smiling or keep people happy I worry about that every time I try and do an event and try and 
sometimes I bite off more than I chew and I have to eat really quickly. <laughs> eat humble pie. That, that was quite a, um, an emotive answer, Lance. Thank you for that and for your honesty because I know, I know that there's a lot of people out there who will have had similar experiences yep. and, um, and it's, we've got a long way to go in terms of talking about the things that We're have um, traumatised us. Yeah. We are getting there. Um, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I look at it now. Um, I think we've still got a long way to go. Mm. Still got a long way to go, but we are getting there. There's mm. no no doubt, and I hope they do. Yes, me too. And as you say, you know, the sharing, sharing the experience was part of the the unburdening of it for you. Mm. Yeah. All right, I'm nearly out of time. You spent time in England as a as a um, 16 year old and um, your formative years. Are, are you a royal watcher? Yep. In fact, I'm probably even a bit of monarchist. I I, I think the republic's going to come. Um, I hope they don't change the flag. I really don't want to see that because it's part of what we all are. I don't mind if they put in, if the indigenous corner into it or whatever. That would worry me because there's a lot of First Nations thing that I think we still have to address. Um, but if I had to pick a favourite royal, it's definitely um, Princess Mary of Denmark. I mean, she is proof that you can pick up class in a pub. <laughs> All right, now this might be a loaded answer for, from coming from you, given your entertaining history. What's the song that can't keep you off the dance floor? Hmm. Okay, um, probably I'll have a couple of strokes at that. Tanya Kernigan sings a song called Nine Mile Run, and if you've ever heard of it, you cannot stop tapping your feet. It's just such a great song. Down by the river on the nine mile run. Um, that would have me toe tapping, but, but sadly my dancing days are over. My partner now is a walking frame. Oh, the other one, there's a lady who nobody's ever heard of called Ellie Greenwich. Right? You've never heard of Ellie Greenwich, but she wrote some of the great songs. Um, she wrote things like uh, River Deep, Mountain High, Chapel of Love, um, all of those uh, songs. And she wrote one called Do Wa Diddy, Do Wa Diddy Diddy Dum Diddy Do. And da do run run uh, the best Christmas song ever Christmas baby won't you please come home um, and do our diddy uh, that would get me on the dance floor do our <laughs> diddy and Tanya's uh, nine mile run oh well that's um, we'll go searching for one of those and I'm sure Leroy will play it for me but um, Lance you've had a, a fascinating life and I, I know that there's more to come and I am so privileged that you've shared your story with me today on Big Little Small I Talk. I am delighted to have shared it with you and uh, it was good it was great fun thank you thank, thank you, you for the opportunity. Thanks Lance. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me on Big Little Small Talk. I hope you can make the time to join me next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app.